This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Sleek Geeks, Dr. Carl, How are you, Sleek Geekers? You are in the Sleek Geek podcast with myself, Adam Spencer, and Dr. Carl. Crucial Nitsky, how are you, Carl? Uh, ever so peachy keen, Dr. Adam. Uh, remember, every day you're still alive after the age of 20 is a good day. There you go. Well, this uh, week's Sleek Geek podcast is brought to us, in fact, by the number of 100. 100? That's 10 squared. Yeah, it's yeah. a multiple of 20, but it's also the ah. number to celebrate 100 or commemorate, ah. more appropriately, the, the centenary of Anzac Day. Yes. Very solemn day at the 25th of April 2015 in Australia. There'll be services in Australia and around the world. Uh, focusing on the Anzac legacy. Mm. I will mention quickly uh, Edwin Jones, my great-great-grandfather, died at Ypres a couple of years ago. My mum and dad were there at Menin Gate. Every Mm. evening at Menin Gate, over the fires, they read a citation and say the name of one Australian digger in commemoration of the work that the Aussies did defending that part. When you say they, who's they? Uh, the the locals, the the, the people. When of you said Ypres. that, Adam, a chill went down my body. Yeah, can you just imagine somebody keeping alive that heritage for a century? My mum and for da- people they don't even know. My mum and dad were there on the night, so knowing they were going to be there, they scheduled E. S. Jones to be read of, and they oh, read no. his citation. Now, can I ask you, Adam, just for our overseas listeners, I've heard that the word Anzac is a protected word. In other words, you can't just say, I'm going to have this Anzac podcast or this Anzac biscuit or this Anzac car. It's a special word that's protected I, I, ooh, in I, Australia? I, I, I don't know if that's uh, officially legally the case. It's something we don't take lightly. A large mm. supermarket chain uh, received a degree of... Uh, uh, public social media criticism recently. Really? Yes, if you've heard of social media criticism, go. I might have. For, for uh, peop- some people thought cashing in on the Anzac heritage by yeah. linking people being fresh in our memory still 100 years on with the fact that fresh is part of their um, their corporate logo. So it's something gotcha. Australians are very defensive about. Mm. On the topic of the diggers, what, what is the term digger actually mean? What's the etymology of digger, Dr. Carl? So etymology meaning word science as opposed to entomology meaning the insectology of it, right? Exactly. Generally in Hamilton when the Australian troops, as they were called, landed, sent a message to them which had three words and two commas and a full stop. Dig, comma, dig, comma, dig, full stop. And as a result, (laughs) they called themselves diggers. Yeah, you want us to dig, mate? That's us. We're diggers. Right, what else do you want? I.e. digging trenches. Digging trenches, digging their way into uh, survival because that's what the Romans were very good at. Whenever they would stop for the night in hostile territory, they would build this huge embattlement around themselves with a trench going down and the dirt from the trench would form another wall so any invaders during the night would have to firstly go down and up. So the Australians followed along that line. And anyone who's seen any of the the television uh, or other um, uh, depictions of Gallipoli, Mm. uh, that was the sort of war that was very inhospitable terrain, tragic that they landed where they did. The wrong place. They landed at the wrong place. Reading the history of the First World War has made me realise that there were maybe half a dozen what he called tipping points Mm. where it could have gone to the other side or to one. Mm. It, was just, it was that close. For example, when chlorine gas had been first brought in, then they, if the German side had followed through, they could have got all the way to the coast and they could have won the war. If the Australians had been landed 
where they were supposed to. In other words, if the taxis had dropped them off, they could have actually got in there and then destabilised mm. the Turkish side and, in fact, have won the campaign, not lost it, and that would have then changed the war and brought it to a close much sooner. But, of course, there are so many changes in everything. To- in, in, in World War Two, people had talked to Dunkirk. It was the Allies' escape from Dunkirk that was a major turning point yeah. in World War Two, for example. Peter Fitzsimons wrote a great book about Gallipoli last year, sold like 7.8 billion copies as far as I understand, more than one per person in the world. One of the bits of technology of the time was the, the periscope rifle. I've seen images of people using these. What's a periscope rifle and how does it work? Well, you get a rifle and you, you've got it, you're in a trench and you're safe and then you shove your head over the trench and bingo, it gets knocked off by a bullet. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but how can you shoot your rifle unless you pop your head up over the trench? Ta-da! The periscope rifle. So they were fiddling around with bits of wood and wire and it was Lance Corporal Beach, guy from Sydney, and he invented the periscope rifle. Now, a periscope is just a box with two mirrors in it. Mm-hmm. Um, one at the top and the bottom, if you look in at the bottom, you see at the top. Kids at school can make them out of a couple of mirrors and a couple of old, like, you know, cylinders or toilet rolls. Yeah, and by the way, kids at school, do this for fun. Make not one but two periscopes mm-hmm. and make them about a metre long mm-hmm. and run them sideways. And then, then just look at something. And then when you're looking at the world, instead of having your eyes 10 centimetres apart, you'll have them 200 centimetres apart. And your sense of stereo will be absolutely astonishing. Really? Oh, it's an amazing thing. You can suddenly see this seagull 50 metres away, really standing out from something 100 metres away and very different from something 25 metres away. You so, you, so you turn the periscope as in you lay the periscope on a table. Yeah, two of them. You look down a tube to a mirror, yeah. have the second mirror about a metre away and then shooting out the tube along the table to an image. Yeah, or if you want a portable version, just tie them to a broom handle and just hold it up, and your eyes, instead of being 10 centimetres apart or 2 metres apart, the sense of stereo is astonishing. Wow. I really wish I had eyes 2 metres apart, but that's another story for another time. Back to the periscope rifle. So Lance Corporal Beach came up with his idea of having a little makeshift periscope with bits of wire and mirrors and a little bit of box and cardboard and stuff, and so he could poke the rifle rifle at the top of the trench and aim it without making himself a target, and it was astonishingly accurate for something so crude. And so in 1915, on 19th of May, Major Thomas Blaney, who later became the field marshal, mm. he saw the guys filling with it and he asked them what it was, and they told him that it was an arrangement, and I quote the exact words, an arrangement you can hit with, comma, without being hit. So then, Nice. Uh, without is, exposing yourself to enemy fire. Yeah, but it is sad that war is so much about killing people. For example, in the First World War, nine million military personnel died, mm. seven million civilians died, and 22 million military were seriously injured or disabled. And when you're thinking about those people who died, the uh, nine plus million military and seven million civilians, that's what, mm. 16, to kill them took... 100 shells per person. By a shell, I mean not just a bullet, which is a skinny thing the size of your thumb, Mm. but something that's six inches or 150 millimetres across. 100 shells per person Person. on average per death. So so 16 million, that's that's 1.6... 16 million, was it, multiply that by 100, what's that? Yeah, 1,600, 1.6 billion. One, yeah, and so that was a really a case of where mass production allowed massive killing. It wasn't efficient, it didn't have to be, because there were people just pouring out these shells out of factories, so 100 shells to kill one person. And, of course, the trauma of families of people who died, oh. but also of the, the lives of people who returned. We're seeing it now in recently returned service people from current conflicts, and at least now we are possibly slightly more down the road of understanding post-traumatic stress and the need for ongoing mental health 
support for mm. people who returned and just from as a conflict. Little, but back in those days, you were just shell-shocked and had to get on with it. Yeah, you just get on with it. Yeah, you know, don't be weakly. But just as a little micro-detour, we are living in the most peaceful time in human history, mm. according to a book by Stephen Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Oh, God, it's 800 pages with tiny print. But <laughs> it is the, we are living in the most peaceful time. So getting back to the artillery, it was the most effective war, weapon system of the First World War. And so therefore, what you want to do is disable the enemy's one. And the way that they thought of doing it was just simply by having triangulation. So you just get a guy who looks at it, a flash spotter, and say, hey, I can see the flash over there. Well, if you can see them, they can see you. Bang, you're dead. Right, mm. and so then they were going for a thing called triangulation. So, and this goes back two and a half thousand years yes. to the Greeks and the Chinese had it, two hundred and fifty AD. And basically, you just sort of set up a baseline, and you walk a hundred meters to your right, and you measure the angle between that line and the target. Then you walk 100 metres to the left and then you measure the angle and you just do plain old trigonometry from way back then and you got the answer. The trouble is you couldn't always find them. They were hidden and they'd try and shoot you. So then they came out with Mark II method, which is, okay, the the front line is over there. You come back four kilometres from the front line. You come back four kilometres and then you lay out a baseline, say, five, nine kilometres long, and you just put microphones all the way along. And then you listen. You don't have to know where the guns are. And then the sound will arrive at one microphone before the next one. Mm-hmm. And then the next and the next and the next. And you do your fancy, is it cosine rule or something? And you, and you end up with being able to work it out. The trouble was they couldn't always pick up the sound of the gun firing. And you think, well, why not? It's obvious. Well, sure, okay, the overwhelming majority of the energy is in the actual charge that goes out the shell. Mm. But there's a lot of energy in the bang. No, there isn't. Only a small amount is in the bang you can hear. Most of the sound energy is what you can't hear. It's in the infrasound and nobody knew it. Ah. So now you've got at the front Lawrence William Bragg or William Lawrence Bragg, one of those. And he is this... As in Bragg who goes on with his father to win the Nobel Prize for their work on X-ray crystallography. Let's let's detour for a second to the incredible father-son combination that were the Braggs. They won the Nobel Prize for physics for their work on X-ray crystallography, yes? Yeah, yeah. And um, they were made it possible to get a crystal, blast a beam of X-rays into that, and then just see how the beam is bent, and it will be bent, of course, and then you go backwards. You do the mathematics, you go backwards, and you work out the location of the atoms inside that crystal. So you understand the structure of the crystal from having blasted an X-ray through it. And the most, one of the most profound insights into the nature of life that we humans have ever made is working out the structure of DNA. Yes. And that came directly from the Braggs. Well, there you go. And they were involved. Okay, but this is outside of his work in winning the Nobel Prize for X-ray crystallography. William Lawrence Bragg is involved in World War One. He's in the World War He's in World War One. started riding horses in the mounted in- infantry, and then he ended up in the MAPS section at General HQ, which is headquarters. He could, he could have drawn a... Bloody good map, William Lawrence Bragg. Yeah, and, and they've tried to work out the. You can pos- trust one of his maps. Oh, and they've tried to work out the position of the German artillery pieces, mm-hmm. but they didn't know that most of the energy was down in the infrasound. Mm-hmm. And so now, when you say the infrasound, inaudible. Yep. Below 20 hertz. In fact, most of it's around about 10 hertz. There's no way you can pick it up with a human ear. The human ear just will not respond. And so he's at the front and he gets a letter from his dad and says, oh, by the way, we won a Nobel Prize. Uh, By the way, his father was perhaps a little 
mean to him, and not mean, but his father was a bit uh, fairly demanding. Demanding. Well, thoughtless. He said he wrote this paper for Nature, which, as you know, is the science journal mm. yeah. in the world. And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, uh, wrote wrote this uh, paper um, and did all this research in crystallography." And he didn't say, "My son." Uh, and then insert name uh, William Lawrence. It was just my son. He had two sons. He did so. My son and I wrote this paper. Uh, have done his research, and he wrote another paper saying my son and I. And you didn't, didn't even bother specifying which, which of his which sons, is, his sons. And had as, done the work to help him win the Nobel Prize. And so, as a result, William Lawrence always later in life was very careful to thank all the people who helped him. Ah. So we should thank Matt and Caroline and Absolutely. Audrey and... Shave. Shave. The team. And, and other random people who happen to be walking past. Mm. So he's at the front and he gets a letter from his dad saying, oh, by the way, won a Nobel Prize. How's things going? He says, oh, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Just keeps on going, right? And he's, he's an officer, so he's billeted... In somebody in some poor bugger's house, mm-hmm. they've been booted out in Flanders. The toilet was a small room with a door, tightly fitting, but no window, and with the door shut. The only connection to the outside world was through the toilet bowl, which didn't go to a proper sewer, but just an open pipe. Okay. So he's sitting with his bare bottom on the toilet seat, and there's this pipe leading to the outside world in mm-hmm. a trench where the sewage runs. And I'm was, fascinated to see where this is going, Carl. And there was a six-inch British artillery piece about. 400 metres away, Mm -hmm. and it would fire and he could hear it fire, and at the same time, his bare bottom would get lifted off the toilet seat. But At the same time as the shell fired. At the same time as he heard the audible sound. But it was far enough away, this is one of these lucky things, that if the wind was blowing the right way, he couldn't hear it. But he he couldn't hear it, but then suddenly his bottom would get lifted off the toilet seat. Is this the infrasound that you're talking about? Yeah. So he'd go around and say, did you guys just fire some shells off at such and such time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he knew that there was enormous energy in the inaudible infrasound, but he didn't know how to detect it. Then one of his other mates was uh, working in his team was a guy called Corporal W.S. Tucker. And the way that he'd get extra people for his team was say, okay, all you people, everybody who has a degree in science, please step forward. Okay. <laughs> and that's how he got his volunteers, so always in physics, because the only real science is physics and everything is stamp collecting. Although the mathematicians are the purest of all, let me just say yeah, that yeah. now, I'm admitting that. So he was not an officer. He didn't sleep in a house. He slept in literally tar, paper, tent. So he got a structure of poles, mm-hmm. you get paper, you cover it with tar, it's waterproof. Off you go. You can put your finger through it. Right. And so there was a hole that was right next to where his face was when he lay down on the pillow. And during the night, he'd suddenly feel this sort of, these little jets of air coming through. Let me guess. Go on. It's the infrasound. It's the infrasound. The same infrasound waves that were lifting what William Lawrence Bragg's naked bottom off the toilet seat, he was feeling them pumped through the hole in the tent. Exactly. And so the solution was obvious. They got an ammunition box, which is, you know, maybe 10 centimetres by 30 by 40, and then running across it, they they, they put a thin platinum wire and they ran electricity through it so it was warm. And then they drilled a small hole uh, directly in line with the platinum wire and aimed the whole thing at the enemy front line. So if there was a b- bunch of infrasound energy coming through, a jet of air would come through. Through the hole in the cardboard, hit the electrified platinum wire. And cool it down. Bingo! They had invented the first infrasound microphone and the German side didn't know this. It was the, the, They invented a system with this... Nine kil- four kilometres back from the front line and then nine kilometres long of microphones. So they've got this line of microphones nine kilometres long. By the time they had it running, 
they could identify the location of the enemy artillery to within 25 to 50 metres. It was devastating. It terrified the Germans and they had to back off on their firing. None of this random firing because Mm. that would then alert the enemy. They had to be all very specific and try and move their guns around. And this then led to their ability to find at several important uh, battles the location of the enemy artillery. Wow. In 1917, remember the war finished in 1918, the German-occupied French city of Combray, they were able to wipe out and silence the German artillery. And it was such a great victory that church bells were rung in London and used again at Means in August 18, August 8, 1918, and so forth and so forth. So, obviously, to me, Adam, speaking as a fellow guy who likes to do the mathematical putting of washing on the line, yeah, it means that you and I, we could well do our best thinking on the toilet seat, and mm-hmm. we should be allowed to sit there for as long as we like. It's interesting what you say about the they made that military breakthrough. And importantly, the opposition didn't know. Mm. And that's often a crucial thing that goes hand in hand with a great military advance is that if your opponents suddenly know you've made that advance, that can take away some of the tactical advantage. People who've seen the imitation game Mm. will see that moment where Turing et al. have deciphered the Enigma machine. They've broken the code. But if they just jump in straight away and start intercepting German U-boats. All of the German U-boats. They would suddenly have a situation where the Germans go, hold it, they they must have cracked the code. We'd better put an extra couple of cogs on the Enigma machine and they'd be set back. Mm. I actually write about this in my latest book, House of Cars. I thought I'd just mention that. Not as popular as your fabulous... um, Big Book of Numbers. numbers. Didn't write about... No, I did write about it in the Big Book of Numbers too. Really? So this is actually in both of our books. Your your book's called... The Big Big Book Book of Numbers. mine is called House of Cars. Moving back now to... Mine's available through my website, adamspencer.com.au if you want an autographed copy. Anyway, yes, another example, and I remember you telling me this before, can we run the lovely subscribers to the Sleek Geeks podcast Mm. through, was it... With radar, when radar. The, the British had radar and they wanted to fudge the fact that they had radar because yeah. it was successful. Tell us the radar story. So at the beginning of the Second World War, all of the developed wealthy countries were working on radar, mm-hmm. but only the British had a fully set up, fully functional and secret system. Even the Americans didn't have a fully functioning system at the beginning of the war. And so they had a 100 or so towers around the United Kingdom providing a ring of confidence, as it were. Can we just quickly side uh, tangent off? How, how, do, how does radar of that age work? Well, basically, it's radio. But instead of broadcasting the radio beam in all directions, you funnel it in a specific needle beam with a parabolic dish. And you just sweep it across the sky and then you switch it off and you listen for the echo. No echo, nothing. So you just sweep it across and suddenly you get an echo. Ah, I've got an echo. So you switch it on, you get an echo, you switch it off and then you wait for the listening and then you hear the echo. So you've got the idea that you on, off, on, off. You're always listening for the echo. If you get a signal only when you're pointing in that direction... That's where the plane is. And if you get a big echo, there's a really big plane or a bunch of them. And if you get a little echo, maybe they're far, a big distance away. Because the radio wave that's been shot out from the dish has hit something, mm. bounced back. Yep and being heard by the dish again. Yes. So, okay. And, and they had a hundred of these towers. And if, if the Nazis had decided, don't like these towers, don't know what they are, and had bombed all of the towers, uh-huh. 
it would have been a different world. The British would have lost the Battle of Britain and... Would have wiped out all their radar capability and given the Germans an upper hand in aerial combat. And, in fact, uh, they could have well invaded and America could have stayed neutral and, God, it would be a very different world. One of these, you know, closing doors things, but they didn't. And it was because the British specifically told a little mistruth. What they said was that the ability of the fighter pilots to be able to go out at night and then shoot down the enemy aircraft coming in involved in the Battle of Britain was because they had fed them carrots, which gave them superior nighttime vision. And and you'd find farmers and even housewives and kids would buy carrots and then deliver them to the local Air Force bases saying, here's some more carrots for you guys so you can go out and find the enemy better. So the whole urban myth that carrots are great for eyesight... Does that come from the whole that, that, that's British radar? From. Now, there is a small element of truth in there because carrots have a chemical, carotene, which will get turned into vitamin A and you need vitamin A for vision because vitamin A then gets turned into retinol, which is a chemical in your retina, et cetera, et cetera. So the chain is carrots, carotene, in, gets turned into vitamin A, gets turned into retinol, retinol gives you vision. But if you are low in vitamin A, you have got a, a crapped up immune system, you've got scabs, you got you are really sick, you know it. It's not as though it, it's a first sign, it's the last sign. So um, it was a case of where they were telling little lies. And now the, the trouble with this story is, Adam, of course, that I'm asking you to believe that the government would ever tell us a lie, which oh, I know, which is absolutely please. impossible. Love the government, everything they've ever done, and especially the people at the Australian Signals Directorate and at the NSA who are recording this conversation. You're talking with, you're listening to Dr. Carl and Adam Spencer on our Sleek Geeks podcast, our Gallipoli special uh, to all the diggers, uh, their families and friends at this special time of year in this very special year for them. Uh, our thanks for their service, lest we forget. Cakes.